Who sent you? Who do you work for? You're not used to them now. Yeah, and I love you too. Now, what are their names? <coughs> no speaking English, huh? Okay. We'll get someone down from Hong Kong who can speak to you. I'm sure you two will really hit it off. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we are watching The Man from Hong Kong from 1975. Quick side note, this movie was retitled to The Dragon Flies for its American release in the USA. So if you don't recognize The Man from Hong Kong, you may know this as its other title. Anyway, it was directed by Brian Trenchard Smith and Jimmy Wang Yu. It was written by Brian Trenchard Smith. And it stars Jimmy Wang Yu as Inspector Feng Sing Leng. It also stars George Lazenby as Jack Wilton and Hugh Keysburn as Maury Gross. Now, we are watching this movie specifically, A, because it has Hugh Keysburn in it. And it's actually been on our wish list since back when we were recording season one. Yeah, even before we met Frank Thring in season two. And he's in this movie. Hold on, Frank Thring. Isn't he the collector? He's the collector in season three. Oh, in season three. Yeah. My God. We've done so many episodes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we just sat down and watched the trailer. I was actually a little surprised to see Frank throwing in there. He offers Jimmy Wang Yu a cigar and he's like, oh, you deserve a cigar. And I'm like, or a sack of grain or one hour with a woman. <laughs> <laughs> it was a pleasant surprise. Yeah. The IMDb summary for this movie is Hong Kong inspector Fang Xing Leng travels to Australia to extradite a drug dealer. When the hood is assassinated on his way to court, everyone suspects Jack Wilton, a crime lord who the local police haven't been able to pick up. Now, as I understand it, Hugh Keysburns' character is the police liaison to Jimmy Wang Yu's Inspector Lang. I haven't watched this movie, though, so I don't know the exact involvement. But the important thing here is that you've got this kung fu movie set in Australia that has George Lazenby as the bad guy. Yeah. But based on the trailer that we watched, I'm kind of looking forward to this one. It's been a while since we've watched a 70s movie for these hiatuses. It has been a while. I'm pretty neutral in this movie. I've been very neutral on movies that we have watched in the past and have been pleasantly surprised by what the movie ended up being and how I ended up feeling about it. So as far as expectations go, my expectation is that I will find something to enjoy. Okay. That's, that's pretty neutral. But it's like I always say, if you have low expectations, then you'll have very little disappointment. <laughs> Let's... Put a pin in our discussion here. I will play the trailer for everyone to listen to, and then when we come back, we will discuss the movie proper. Nobody is safe from the man. 
man from Hong Kong. Listen, there's a Chinese cop in town. He's beginning to annoy me. Jimmy Wong Yu is the man from Hong Kong. With his sights set on smashing organized crime. In my country, Caroline, we have a sport. We take the giant praying mantis, put him in the wooden cage, and make him fight for his life with his own kind. I thought you would enjoy such a sport. You and Jack Walton in a wooden cage. <laughs> He's a very dangerous man. George Lazenby is Jack Wilton. Gun runner, dope peddler. I've never met a Chinese yet that didn't have a yellow streak. East meets West. In a head-on clash. Golden Harvest, who made Bruce Lee a box office smash, have joined with Australia's action specialists to produce a death-defying spectacle that staggers the senses. The man from Hong Kong knows no rules. Everyone he runs across is never quite the same again. I understand the gunman is dead. How did that happen? I killed him. Really? Well, in that case, you deserve a cigar. <coughs> Thank you. I don't smoke. Provoke him at your peril. I want that lunatic stopped. Nothing stands in his way. For long. Nobody's safe. From the man from Hong Kong. And we're back. Julia, what are your initial reactions to the man from Hong Kong? My initial reaction is much the same as my expectations. Relatively neutral. There were things that I liked. There were things that bored me. There were things I didn't like. So overall... Five. Okay. How about you? I was totally on board for this movie in the first half. I'm not going to lie. They really had me in the first half. But ugh, in the middle of the movie, there was a detour that completely derailed the story and it slowed everything down for a weird little montage. And then when they started to come back, the action scenes that they had towards the end of the movie didn't hold me. So. I wouldn't necessarily say that I feel neutral about this movie. I just have really mixed feelings about it. We have the same problem. I agree the first half was exciting and there were things that interested me. In fact, everything that I have to say about the movie that's positive is from the first half. Okay. And everything that is negative is from the second half. It's almost like there were two different directors. Well, there were two different directors. You had Brian Trenchard Smith who wrote the story and then you had... Jimmy Wang Yu, who was, I'm assuming, the director when it came to the action scenes. But it does feel like at some point, Brian Trenchard Smith got tired of directing. Like, he wrote the story, and he got everybody together, and then halfway through the production, I guess he just got tired of it and said, oh, we'll just have a bunch of action scenes. Go for it, Jimmy. That really sounds about right. <laughs> Let's start in on this movie 
at the logical beginning, which is the opening scene at Uluru, where you've got some guy with a briefcase waiting by Ayers Rock, and then another dude with an identical suitcase in a tour bus rolling up to that landmark. We are introduced to a couple of the main-ish characters, but it's interesting that there are a lot of people who are involved in this fight who aren't ever seen again. It's a combo of the secondary bad guy versus the secondary good guy fighting and then a whole bunch of people around them. Right, because you've got the dude on the bus who has the face scar. Yep. And also on the bus is Roger Ward with this fantastic Outback hat. And he's posing as a tourist because he's tracking this guy. Yeah. I don't think anybody else really comes back because you've got the dude in the red t-shirt that blows up and you've got the dude in the helicopter, but no one besides Roger Ward and Scarface dude have any bearing on what happens later. The first thing that struck me about the scene is how James Bond-esque it was. Where you always start off a James Bond movie with some non-sequitur action scene that actually turns out to be very crucial. Yes. And I enjoyed the action in it. It was a bit campy. It was a bit rough around the edges. The editing was certainly rough, but uh, the editing's rough in the whole movie. It is a 70s Hong Kong action movie. Yeah, it is what it is, and that's fine. The editing did not prevent me from enjoying the movie. The plot. <laughs> Prevented me from enjoying the movie. I actually appreciated it because it was so classically spy thriller. The clandestine meetup, the swap, the all too obvious spy craft techniques that are going down where the two guys sit on the bench next to each other and, oh, blah, blah, blah. Not that they necessarily traded a keyword, but they pretended to look at pictures on a camera or something and then swapped around and then Roger Ward being the most obvious covert picture taker in the history of covert picture takers. Yeah, there had to have been a better way to execute taking pictures. Like, all he had to do was stand further away so that it wasn't so obvious that he wasn't pointed up at the rock. Yeah, I did appreciate how you're looking through the camera lens at the bad guy, the one in the red t-shirt, and the bad guy looks straight into the camera and then they show Roger Ward with the camera pointing right at him and it's like oh he's busted. I did really like that that we were seeing the pictures that were being taken and they were great pictures and very incriminating and everything that they needed and then there was one where we see the criminal looking straight at the camera Yeah, it was great. What really roped me into this opening action scene is the descent of the law onto that scene. You've got the helicopter, you've got the dude jumping in the car and then you've got Scarface running up Ayers Rock and Roger Ward pursuing after him. I'm like, this is the most Australian thing I think I've ever seen. (laughs) The only thing the scene was lacking was didgeridoo music. Absolutely. I love that they went up the rock for their fight and they very much used that landscape of the rock in their fighting. I understand that the rock is a thousand feet high and six miles around at the base. But if you're trying to get away from someone, why do you climb up the rock Other than providing an audience with a fight scene on top of a national landmark. Yeah, that's the only reason. (laughs) So Win Chan is not very intelligent. We don't really get to know him. He's pretty quiet. He does not speak English. He only speaks to Fang in Mandarin. I think Mandarin is. They call everything Chinese. If it's Asian, it's Chinese in this movie. So there's no distinction 
of different languages or different Asian cultures. It's just all Chinese. So I have no earthly idea any sort of nuance about what's going on. So I believe it's Mandarin that he's speaking. So we do not get to know him, but the way that it's telegraphed to us, especially in the bus before the trade goes down, is that he's dumb. Like a fall guy? Yes. So I think that's why he ran up the rock. (laughs) But I love that he ran up the rock. It was such a unique setting for a fight. From one side, it's kung fu-esque and the other side it's just australian outback brawling so their two styles don't mix at all they're not compatible really and so they're just taking turns pushing each other down the rock right (laughs) it was fantastic i like that it was a unique setting and the whole time you got the fight scene you've also got the car being chased by the helicopter and the way that the helicopter is swooping in and around i turned to you on the couch and I was like, I am 100% in on this movie at this point. If all of the action scenes in the rest of this movie had been as exciting as this open action scene, I would have been in for the whole movie. I was in at the beginning. For this scene, I was there. But they could not hold on to the specialness of this scene for the rest of the movie. Mm -hmm. One thing that really struck me about this opening scene is how in the 70s and I'm sure in the 80s, Ayers Rock was such a tourist destination, but I remember talking to George, uh, George Miller specifically, I remember talking to him and he was discussing with me the idea that Uluru is such a sacred site to the native population of Australia that when it comes to shooting in and around that area, it's very important to talk to the people who live in that area and I guess sign off on everything you want to do and how there was a possibility of filming Mad Max scenes in and around Uluru, and they just couldn't guarantee that things would remain pristine. Mm -hmm. Now, granted, everything that Miller was doing was in early mid-80s, where this was mid-70s. So there was a whole decades of difference between those two interactions. But the whole time I'm watching it, I'm like, I don't think... Everybody would be cool with everything that they're doing in this movie. Yes. It made me laugh. It does sound like very much the culture of the time because (laughs) part of the fight scene on the rock was them using the hand railings that had been permanently installed in the rock to help the climbers. So they're using those to help chase each other. And I didn't get the sense that those were put in for the movie. No, those are very much tourist trap related yeah stuff for those people that want to take the bus out and climb the thousand feet to the top the first eight and a half minutes Mm -hmm. of the film is this opening action scene and then they make some sort of comment about oh you're chinese you don't speak english i guess we'll have to bring in someone from the hong kong office which i'm sure you're very familiar with them and then it smash cuts to jimmy wang Yu as inspector feng sing lang in Hong Kong, pretty much showing off to the other cops. Yeah, that annoyed me a little bit. He seemed to be in a setting where he was supposed to be teaching them, and then he just turned it into an opportunity to show off. My gosh, this movie goes so far in making Inspector Fang look like such a super cop. He is the only one in this opening scene that is dressed in fairly normal clothes. He's got a white button-down shirt, 
and some trousers, and everybody else in the scene is dressed in their police uniforms. Even that one scene where he's showing off his karate prowess, they're dressed in little white shorts. They're not even yeah. wearing geese or anything like that. And it's a nonstop cavalcade of, oh, look at him. He's an expert marksman. Oh, look at him. He's taking on four dudes at once. And it's such a wank. <laughs> <laughs> it was another aspect where the movie felt very James Bond-esque. Oh, absolutely. Because I can picture James Bond in a similar situation. It also really hammered home the point that the guy who is playing the action lead in this movie is also one of the directors. There is no scene in this movie that makes Jimmy Wang Yu look bad. Even when he is taking hits during fights, even when he's incredibly hurt, none of these scenes make him look bad. No, in fact, there's a moment way later on where he is incredibly hurt and they make a point of saying how cool he is in a time when he is incredibly hurt. It's a bit obnoxious, but it is something to be expected from a 70s action movie. You need to take your lead character and make them seem like the best thing since sliced bread. Mm -hmm. It does feel very 70s. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another thing that this opening scene does is that it introduces the first of our named female characters. <laughs> There is a big emphasis on hang gliding in this movie, something that you wouldn't necessarily expect coming into it. No, I was confused by the hang gliding. It was so prevalent in the introduction to Hong Kong. It's how we are introduced is we are following this hang glider around and this is how we are seeing the city and that we know we're in a different place than we were before. I was so confused. Oh, this is also when they play like the opening music. Oh, my which also gosh. felt very James Bond esque. It was totally like a Bond song. Yes. I really like the theme song for this movie. I like it because it felt like it fit in the opening here. You knew what they were talking about and you knew like the type of character that they were introducing is this suave, capable inspector who can do anything. And then they played at the end of the movie, too, and it still feels like it fit. It works on multiple levels, yeah. which is why I appreciate it so much. <laughs> but the hang glider turns out to be an Australian reporter who is doing this story about hang gliding, which, hey, you know, if you love what you do, you never have to work a day in your life. Write about what you love doing. But she crashes in the police training yard and Inspector Fang picks her up and he's like, I'm going to escort you back to your hotel. And he ends up doing exactly that in a very James Bondy style. Mm -hmm. It is a smash cut where she says what makes you so special of an inspector and he's like i'll show you and then wham bam they are in bed yeah i like caroline she shows her backbone throughout the rest of the movie but he exploited her he was gonna press charges mm -hmm. and he had already taken away her hang glider. he had confiscated the hang glider he was going to press charges she was gonna have to go to court for violating airspace right because you can't just hang glide into a police training yard no so once they were done and laying in bed, she's like, so you're going to drop the charges now, right? And he's like, yeah, yeah, no problem. <laughs> so you know what? I think they exploited each other. Yeah. They both got what they wanted. I kept thinking throughout the whole time that we were watching this movie how novel of an idea it is that we have an Asian leading man 
And I never brought it up while we were watching it because, of course, you would have an Asian leading man when you have a Hong Kong action film. It's only in America that you lack those films where the action lead, the romantic lead, the lead in general is an Asian man. So many times you think of movies like Big Trouble in Little China, the main character, the one who actually affects the plot is the Asian character, but you still have the white male character to be on the front of the poster. I don't want to go into this whole international racist type thing. Right. Examination of Hollywood. But I just thought it was novel. Right. He fills all the roles, which is kind of the thing about the character is that he is everything. And to the movie as a character, yeah, he is everything. Mm -hmm. He is the romantic lead. He is the action lead. He's the one who solves all the problems. He's the one who beats up everybody. He is everything. It is his movie. Yep. He is the Asian James Bond. Absolutely. Now, I don't think we've ever really talked about James Bond movies, but I think you're opinion of them probably pretty close to how you see the man from hong kong where you could take him or leave him i do not like james bond he's incredibly sexist yes yeah. it's, it's so bad and i do recognize that the ones that got more into the 80s and 90s and aughts and whatnot got better as culture changed so did james bond and there are james bond movies that i enjoy but none of them are sean connery and they're not george lazenby either I think Sean Connery was the worst of them all. Oh, absolutely. It's disgusting. But like the Pierce Brosnan and the Daniel Craig. So those ones, like, I don't love them, but I've seen them and I wasn't completely disgusted by them. But yeah, there's a lot of, and we're going to keep saying this, James Bond energy in this. Yes. I have to think that that's what they were going for. Oh, absolutely. That they saw the success of James Bond. I mean, we're still talking about it because those movies created a cultural icon. And even after one movie, George Lazenby will always be known as being a Bond. Yeah, he was the one Bond. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the one and done Bond. So, of course, just like Mad Max, everybody's going to keep referring to Mad Max when they see post-apocalyptic stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, the new Batmobile, the picture came out for that, and everyone's like, oh my goodness, it's so Mad Max. Because... James Bond, Mad Max, have been made into cultural icons. We're just going to keep talking about them. Mm -hmm. Speaking of Caroline, since she was introduced fairly early on in the movie, one of the things I really liked about her is that she has her own agency. She is an independent woman with her own interests. She has her own relationships. Her existence in this movie does not revolve around Inspector Fang. When you said that, it occurred to me that this movie does not pass the Bechdel test, but despite that fact, it still has this female character that even though she's the only real female character in this movie, as we'll get into what I mean by that, she is so independent and does have her own identity that it still feels feminist. Women are represented in this movie by her, and it's a shame that women aren't represented by more than one character. But they are represented. She's not demure. She's not submissive. When she, I don't want to say crash lands in the middle of the police training yard, but she lands in such a way that you don't look at it and say, oh, yes, that was 100% planned. But when she lands and she's swarmed by cops, she's not, oh, no, I'm so helpless and someone help me. She's like, hey, what are you people doing? Yeah, you can't take my hang glider. That Where am I? To me. Yeah. <laughs> 
she immediately stands up for herself. Yeah. And then come to find out that back in Australia, she's in a relationship with someone. I don't know if she's married to Charles or if they're just in a relationship, but they are attached in some way. But while she was in Hong Kong, she slept with Fang. Oh, yeah. She made her choices. Mm -hmm. And it was fine. And I like it when Fang calls her up because he needs help getting into a party that George Lazenby's character is throwing. And so he's going to try and use some of her connections. But he calls her up and she is in bed with this other man just casually picking up the phone. And it's not one of those situations where her partner is like, oh, who's that on the phone? Hang up with them immediately. Her partner asks, who's that on the phone? And she kind of brushes him off. Yeah. Like, it's not your concern who I'm on the phone with. I am my own independent person. Let me speak on the phone. And it's great because she's sitting there talking to Inspector Fang and her partner is like running his face up and down her leg. And I'm pretty sure he's licking her or something. There's an odd number of licking scenes in this movie. I'll say that much. But it shows that she is her own woman, that she can make and have these relationships independently. It's very refreshing. It is. And the more we get to know her, the more I like her. It took a little while for us to see her a second time. So for a while, I thought it was a one and done, that she was there to help introduce us to the type of person that Fang is. And so when she popped back up, we're like, oh, okay, she actually is going to participate. And again, I thought that was going to be the last interaction when she went to the party with him because she said, I can't help you with this anymore. I don't want to get mixed up with this. But then she popped up again to like wrap the whole thing up. Her storyline, I felt, was very well wrapped up. Another thing that I like about her is how many different outfits she gets to wear and how many different faces she gets to put on. When we're first introduced to her, she's got the jumpsuit from hang gliding. And so she looks very athletic or adventurous. And then when she takes Fang to the party, she gets to dress up a bit and she's wearing something very stylish. And then at the end of the movie, when he calls her up and she's hanging out with her other hang gliding friends on a speedboat, she gets to wear a bathing suit. Yeah. She gets variety. She's not painted as just one thing. And it's great. In stark contrast to Caroline, though, we have a character who I think her name is said maybe once or twice. None of the times I actually caught it. So I had to look into the cast credits and I'm pretty sure her name is Angelica. Yes. And she's played by Rebecca Gilling. She shouldn't exist in the movie at all. Oh, my word. This is where the movie fell apart. Her presence is where the movie fell apart. Like, there are multiple reasons why the movie falls apart at the halfway point. We said very quickly after we stopped watching the movie that one of the reasons it fell off the rails is because Fang went off on his own. He left his police escorts behind Mm -hmm. and just went off solo. Well, part of going off solo is getting your ass handed to you by a dojo full of dudes with weapons and then two other goons in an elevator shaft. And so when he dives through the window of this passing van... And suddenly it's Angelica and this Singapore exchange student who have picked him up, not on purpose. Like, he threw himself in their lap, and it's a good thing they were good people. Otherwise, he would have been screwed. Yeah, I don't like how he accosted their vehicle, and they were like, oh, no, this man is hurt. We should take him to the hospital. And he's like, no, 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 don't do that. So what are they supposed to do? Like, they are good people. They're not going to just dump him on the side of the road. They want to take him to the hospital. They want to do the right thing. And he says no. And so he just, 
I don't know, expects them to go out of their way to take care of him, which they do because, again, they are good people. It's just putting a lot on random strangers. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I'm going to put my life into your hands even though you have nothing to do with me. You have no responsibility for me, but I'm making you responsible now. And it's incredibly lucky that... This woman's father is a veterinary surgeon, mm-hmm. so he's able to patch up right. Fang he... after his, you know, multiple lacerations and injuries and blood loss. And oh my god, it's so cheesy when Fang is lying on the table and the doctor's like, "Oh, his heartbeat is slow but strong. It's like he's using meditation to slow the bleeding or something like oh, that." Oh, that made me like throw up a little in my mouth. Oh, that my was word. so gross. He did also say a funny line, something to the effect of, if he were a horse, I would know how to fix this, but I suppose the principles are all the same. <laughs> Which, you know what? It's not like he had a ton of internal damage. Yeah. It was all lacerations. So it is the same. You just stitch him up and he'll be fine. He just right. needs time to recover from blood loss and exhaustion. So it is all the same. And of course, part of that recovery is... Fang and Angelica spending a lot of time together, and so we go into a love song montage. Oh, which this... is the most ex- it's not the most excruciating thing, but it might as well be. Certainly in this movie, I may have rolled my eyes harder than I ever have at anything before in my life. It was so out of place. It was awkward. I know that there's this trope in movies where people get thrown into dangerous situations and it creates attachment. And that's a real thing. That does not apply here. (laughs) And there was a lot of racism involved because the exchange student was from Singapore and magically spoke the same language as the man from Hong Kong because everything is just Chinese. Mm -hmm. So of course they speak the same language. So Angelica brings him some Chinese soup And he assumes that the Singapore, what is her name? The Singapore exchange student? Yeah. In the credits, she's credited as Chinese girl. Oh, okay. Yeah, Elaine Wong. Not even Singaporean girl, Singaporean? Not even even Singapore exchange student. Okay. You know what? Her real name is Elaine, so we're going to call her Elaine because she deserves a name. (laughs) So he assumes that Elaine is the one who takes care of him in a Chinese way when it's actually Angelica. Just goes to show anybody can be racist. Right. It's not a white person thing exclusively. <laughs> She's not without fault, though, because after the montage is over and they are having a little picnic in front of these waterfalls and whatnot, Fang brings up the fact that now that he's recovered from his injuries, he really needs to get back to work. And she's like, oh, why do you have to leave? And I'm thinking oh, it's because it's, it's, it's his job. He's a police inspector. He needs to catch his man. He can't just leave. It's not like he went to his chief and put in his formal resignation. Right. He's not on vacation. He's in the country to work. Yeah. So she feels all upset because he's choosing to leave her. And then she makes this comment about how would he stay if she was Chinese or something like that? Wow. I didn't hear that because I tuned out. She pulls the edges of her eyes in order to change her eye shape. Yes. And she made a comment about plastic surgery. And I was like, no, that is a different Bond movie altogether, but no less problematic. Yeah. These people are just 1970s racism all over the place. All over the place. And then he makes a joke about acupuncture. And the one like interesting thing about that scene is that... It's clear that they're falling in love. They've been kissing. 
but that's it. And so she asks permission to have sex with him. It is nice to see consent. Yes. And the idea of a woman propositioning a man. Yeah. Especially because he has recently, very recently, three days by the clothing count, three days it's been, been very grievously injured. So he shouldn't be having sex right now. It's not a good thing for his body at the moment. So she says, are you recovered enough for me to make love to you? And he's like, oh, I think I can take the pain. Yeah. The voice on Jimmy Wang Yu in this movie, I don't know if they did any sort of ADR work, but you look at him and the voice that comes out of him is much deeper than you would assume for a man of his stature. I don't think it's his voice. It seems dubbed because it's not done well. <laughs> I mean, I've seen worse. I've definitely seen worse, but it's not done well. Yeah. So then we get the second lovemaking scene oh and we uh, see a repeat of his techniques. You look at Angelica in this movie and I'm pretty sure she's only there to deliver. There must be a quota of TNA when it comes to these 70s movies, because unlike the love scene with Carolyn early in the movie where it just smash cut to them, I'm guessing postcoital, postcoital or midcoital, mm. maybe they might have stopped for a rest glass of water before going back for round two i don't know is the beginning of the movie but in this scene with fang and angelica she takes her top off so breasts are on screen for the viewing pleasure i guess and then the one thing i do appreciate about fang is he lays her back they're kissing and then his head disappears downward and i'm like oh Good on you, Fang. He's a giving sort. He's a giving sort. I appreciate that. <laughs> That's probably why he's so popular as a lovemaker. Because yeah. he's a giving lover. Yes. That's very important. <laughs> if there's a silver lining to this awful and interminable midpoint of the movie, it's that fact alone. To just know that. Yeah. I can't help... But look at this midpoint of the movie and think of Mad Max, the first movie, where Max puts in his notice of giving up the badge and then going on vacation with Jesse. Because it does strike me as an odd thing in Mad Max, but Mad Max is able to recover. This movie is not. Right. In Mad Max, they use this, oh, we're going to go out into the countryside now. They use it as part of the plot. This whole Falling in love portion has nothing to do with the plot. You could remove it entirely and it would not change the movie. At the time that it was happening and I was hating it, I was thinking maybe he needed his motivation to be re-upped because how they transition back to the city is with his big car chase. Mm -hmm. But it didn't turn out that way. That car chase was never brought up. But let's talk about the car chase. Oh my gosh. Because it was particularly awful. The revenge car chase is started because Fang and Angelica are in the van driving back to the city. And George Lazenby, who his character's last name is Wilton. So Wilton's men have hunted down this van. And so there's a dude on a motorcycle with a stick on time bomb. He sticks it to the van. The van explodes, goes off the road. Angelica is killed very soon after we were introduced to her. In the grand scheme of the movie, we are introduced to Angelica sometime around an hour into the movie. She is dead about 15 minutes later. And this is a nearly two hour movie. 
Yeah, so you compare the effect that she had on the movie to the effect that Carolyn has on the movie, and I don't even count Angelica as a female character. Yeah, she yeah. is literally just something to keep him occupied in the middle of the film while he recuperates. Right. And also, one of the most nefarious tropes of female characters, she is killed off as a way to motivate him to action, because that revenge car chase is fueled by his awful grief over the loss of his lover. And so he hunts down and systematically destroys through this one car chase the three men that were involved in the killing, but also so many bystanders. Okay, this car chase. Oh my gosh. It is a seven minute, 54 second long car chase. It was way too long. And the amount of collateral damage... It was horrendous. It's nothing compared to the big blockbuster movies that we see nowadays that are heavy on collateral damage. Yeah. Nothing compared to that level. But it felt a lot more personal because we saw at least three people who were directly affected by this car chase. Like one guy, his car was flipped over. One woman was run off the road with a delightfully exasperated look on her face. Yeah. I feel like the people that were driving those cars are supposed to be cameos. They were so like pointed at with the camera that, yeah, it, it felt like they were supposed to be somebody. And to me, what I saw was, yeah, these are individuals with lives and responsibilities. And now their lives have been affected some very seriously, like the family whose house they drove through. Yeah. Because of this random car chase that they did not need to happen. They drove through a house. Through a house. <laughs> Which, honestly, that's pretty spectacular of a stunt to drive oh, through a house. Oh, for sure. Stunt for wise, sure. awesome. But the same awesomeness could have been accomplished by driving through a van. Or like George did. Driving through a van or like a mobile home or something like that. Yeah. Because the... Stunts in this movie are a lot of fun to watch. I will give it that. One fun thing about this movie, aside from Roger Ward, Hugh Keysburn, and Frank Thring all being in it, is that you also have Grant Page, who played the sniper that kills the witness that actually like motivates a lot of this stuff to happen. Yeah. Grant Page worked on a lot of those Mad Max movies back in the 80s. So there's a really solid connection there. Is Grant Page the one who was in a motorcycle accident, like, right before shooting was supposed to start? I and, think like, so. And, like, broke both of his legs? I think so. And the woman who was supposed to play Jesse was on the bike with him. Yeah. I had serious problems with the car chase. It really came as a second part to the falling in love scene mm -hmm. that killed the movie. It's, it was just too long. It's something that didn't need to be there. Yeah. You could cut from the one hour mark up to a about, I wouldn't say the hour and a half mark, but there's a good 20, 25 minutes you can cut completely out of this film and be absolutely fine and still be over 90 minutes long. Mm-hmm. It's not like they needed to pad the runtime. It was, what, one hour 43? One hour 51. Yeah. So it had time to spare. So once Fang gets back to the city, that's when they have the big showdown with George Lazenby. I really appreciated George Lazenby's portrayal of the evil corporate import-export, but also gun and drug runner, Wilton. I really liked him. He was very charismatic. He was incredibly unnerving at times, nefarious even. He has 
this dojo full of people that he hires from and they have him do a fight scene, but then they reveal at the end of the fight scene that he was, you know, cheating because he had this piece of metal in his hand while he was punching the whole time. Like he's not a good dude, but you can tell that he's a guy who enjoys being evil. I enjoyed him very much as well. The garden party scene. Oh my gosh, the garden party scene. So good. It was excellent. And I wish that the fight between them, that Wilton presents this fight like, let's entertain our guests. Yeah. We're both skilled in this martial arts. Let's entertain the guests. And immediately it goes off the rails into a brawl. Yeah. So I, I kind of wish that that had been kept a little bit more of a strategic spar. Like, I'm not actually trying to hurt you, but I'm trying to learn about you. Mm-hmm. It's a mental spar. So I wish it was a little bit more of that. But it was a great scene. The whole garden scene was great. Again, it was a great Carolyn scene. She put her foot down. These two powerful men who are trying to kill each other, and she just steps in between them. And she's like, enough. This is over. Yeah. And we're leaving. Wilton has a crossbow level that Fang. Fang has a throwing knife in his hand, and she steps between the two yeah. of them. Either one of them could start throwing deadly force at the other at any point, and she's like, nope, I am getting in the middle of this, and I am putting my foot down. Yeah, it was fantastic. That garden fight was insane, because as soon as Wilton realized that he couldn't outsmart and outmaneuver Fang, the gardeners show up. <laughs> of them and they have gardening tools and they just start attacking fang and the whole time wilton is standing back in a gazebo watching this hong kong police inspector fight his gardeners yes it was great because the garden tools were very effective and made me a little squeamish because there was like hooking and pulling and grabbing with sharp tools and it made me a little squeamish they were great fighting weapons Mm -hmm. the thing that really let me down with george lazenby though is the final fight between him and Fang, where Wilton is straight up waiting for Fang to show up. He knows that he has survived the assassination attempt. He knows that he is coming for him. And so he just holds up in his penthouse with a security door down and a gun next to him. And when Fang busts through that window, Tarzan style, and Mm -hmm. they start going at it, I found the fight to be very clumsy. I honestly do not have an opinion on the fight because I was tuned out by now. I did really enjoy the grenade in the mouth. Oh, my God. I thought that was so clever is a strong word, but entertaining. It was very campy. Psychotic. It was. Yes, it was psychotic. (laughs) It is the sort of thing that Wilton should have done. Mm -hmm. But maybe the point is that by now... Fang, he's so off the rails by now. And maybe it's because of, what's her name? Adele? Angelica. Angelica, thank you. I can't even remember her name. Maybe it's because of her that he is behaving this way, but that wasn't communicated. It was communicated that this is just how he fights. He's a dirty fighter. The level of aggression and taking it too far that Fang demonstrates in this movie makes me really worried for Hong Kong cops in general. Like, if this is how all of the inspectors behave, how do they get anything done? Right. Like that grenade you mentioned? Fang puts a grenade in Wilton's mouth, tapes the grenade to Wilton's head, and says, write a confession, and then sign it. If you don't, I'm going to blow up your face. How is that admissible in the Australian crimes system? 
or justice system or whatever we're calling it these days. I just can't fathom it. It's pretty crazy. And jumping ahead a little bit, this is my least favorite part of the movie is because he gets away with all of this and gets heralded as a hero. Yeah, they laugh it off at the end, like literally laugh it off. Literally laugh it off. And you know why he can get away with forcing Wilton to write a confession? Because he and Wilton are the only ones that know that he did that and Wilton's dead now. Yeah. So he can turn in that confession and say, hey, Wilton wrote this of his own accord and it's admissible. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't need to be. They're not charging him with anything now because he's dead. Right. But Taylor and Gross literally make a joke and laugh yeah. about the explosion. Mm-hmm. I absolutely hated that. And I predicted that that was what was going to happen. And I said, like 20 minutes earlier, if this is how it ends and everybody is happy about it, I'm done. It's over. I hate this movie. (laughs) I hate this ending so much. (laughs) It might as well have ended on one of those freeze frames where everybody is laughing and jumping up in the air to a freeze frame or something like that. Oh, it's the yeah. the type of thing that you would expect a 80s sitcom to end on. I was going to say, it's very sitcom-y. Yeah. <sighs> well, before we revel in the things that we couldn't stand, what was your favorite part of this movie? My absolute favorite part of this movie is something that, miraculously, we have not touched on at all yet. It's Taylor and Gross. I am in the same boat because... Taylor and Gross are my absolute favorite part of this movie yes, as well. Yes, they were delightful together. And Maureen Gross, which is Hugh Keys Burns' character, is so a good version of Toe Cutter. Oh, yeah. He yeah. absolutely is. His hair is part of his character. It is magnificent. It is. And when he's running and it's like blowing in the wind, it's fabulous. And Roger Ward as Bob Taylor. It took a minute for me to recognize him because he had a full head of hair and no mustache. Yes, I never actually made that visual connection that they were the same person. But the way that Taylor and Gross play off each other, because Taylor is the straight-laced cop who is the head of the task force and Gross is his wildcard cop. Absolutely. Who wears a tunic-style t-shirt his t-shirt his t-shirt cut and the way he wears it reminds me of robin hood it does yes it makes him look like he's on loan from the renaissance fair or uh, absolutely like that. and they were just so much fun and gross is a little goofy mm-hmm. and he's got such a great sense of humor and taylor even though he is the straight laced one doesn't bristle against gross's sense of humor he rolls with it he finds him funny Mm -hmm. and they bounce off of each other and they laugh at each other it was so delightful i could have taken an entire movie with just taylor and gross yes and so about halfway through the movie when fang leaves the city in the van we don't see taylor and gross until the very last scene Mm -hmm. And that is something that is missing from the second half of the movie. Yeah. They lose track of him completely. And they're able to catch up with the aftermath of his crazy revenge chase. And they're sitting there wondering, hey, I wonder where he went right now. Do you think he went to go see Wilton? They're like, yeah, he went to go see Wilton. Let's go. And they're trailing behind him. And they do the whole movie. They're just trying to keep up with him. 
and trying desperately to control him. This is not your investigation. Wilton is not your person to chase. Mm-hmm. You do not need to know who he is. This isn't Hong Kong. This, you can't go off right, the way you're going. You are going. here to help us interpret and extradite this bad guy. That is the only thing. And the whole time, it's actually kind of funny, a fang, he never buys into those lines. He always knows that he is going to solve this case on his own and completely disregard the Australian authorities. What's awful is that the way that Fang does it as a Hong Kong inspector is so different from the way that Taylor and Gross do things as Australian, I guess, detectives, cops, whatever they are, whatever level they've attained. Mm -hmm. And it's Gross, the guy who you look at and think, oh, yeah, he's the... You know, there's a lethal weapon parallel here. Maury Gross is supposed to be the Riggs character, the crazy Mel Gibson type. And Bob Taylor is supposed to be the Murtaugh, I'm too old for this nonsense type. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. But but even Gross is looking at Fang and saying, whoa, buddy, dial it back. That's not how we do things here. Yeah. Because now that I'm thinking about it, everybody that Fang comes in contact with dies. Yeah. Everybody he fights, it's a fight to the death. Like, even in the dojo, I think six people died. And there was more than six people there. So not every last person. But out of the group of maybe a dozen people that he fights, six of them are dead. Yeah, I don't think all of them died because there were a couple that were rolling around and moaning. They were doing that thing, the little moan that voice actors do to show that the character isn't completely dead. So there may not be all of the blood on Fang's hands, but there is a lot of blood on Fang's hands, which is why it's really easy to get behind Taylor and Gross. I think we had the same favorite. Yep, we had the same favorite. Excellent. Now, you said your least favorite thing was the ending. Yes, it was the hero ending. I'm okay with Wilton being blown up. I love that The grenade was taped into his mouth. I'm delighted by that. And I'm okay that he was blown up. I'm okay that his organization was blown up. What I really didn't like was that Fang was heralded as a hero. Yeah. Because Fang destroyed everything he came in contact with. Yeah. And how many people were in those floors that had nothing to do with the criminal aspects of the organization? Like, at least there were, like, cooks and housekeepers. In his home. Well, now we're getting into a Death Star situation where how, yes. many con- how many independent contractors that were not politically affiliated with the Empire were killed when Luke Skywalker blew it up? <laughs> what was your least favorite? My absolute least favorite part of the film, and I probably have intoned this earlier, was the countryside detour. When I say you can cut it out, I mean literally get rid of it entirely and you change nothing. All you have to do is instead of sending Fang to the countryside to recover, send him to a hospital or something like that. And then the next thing you can do is have him crashing through the window of Milton's office penthouse thing. Yeah, he can still recuperate under the guard of the police because that's why he didn't want to go to the hospital was because the goons would be able to get him there and kill him there. Give us more Taylor and Gross. Give us more Taylor and Gross. He would spend a few days in the hospital. He could still break out of the hospital early because he's the type who would never wait for doctor's approval to leave the hospital. He could still call Carolyn and say, hey, I need your help. And she can still hook him up with the hang glider. I need to get towed across the city on a hang glider. Oh, that was that was 
excellently awful. <laughs> That's where the movie returned to what it was in the first half. I guess there were so many gorgeous helicopter shots in yes. this movie. If the Australian Board of Tourism didn't throw money at this movie, they really should have. I think the fact that this movie is in part presented by the British Empire Films Australia and the Australian Film Development Corporation mm -hmm. really shows through. <laughs> it really shines as a beacon. Nice. I agree. It, it really is beautiful. And they took another opportunity to show it off, which I really appreciated. Honestly, despite the fact that it is half a world away, based solely on the loving shots that were in this movie, I would love to visit Sydney. I would love to visit Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. Despite the fact that Carolyn's like, Kowloon Bay, it has the best updrafts for hang gliding, and yet it has the highest pollution and all of these other bad aspects she has very mixed emotions about hong kong loves it and hates it all at the same time but the way that this movie is shot it looks amazing mm -hmm. and it makes me want to go there and then i realize it's like a 24-hour plane ride <laughs> and i'm like mm, no way anything else you want to talk about um, i think that pretty much brings us to the end so what are your final thoughts or recommendations regarding this movie I think if you're into kung fu movies, I think you'll like it. I think you'll be entertained by the fight scenes that bored me. You'll still be bored by the car chase, though. <laughs> there was a lot to love about this movie. And as usually happens, by the time we're done with the conversation, I have a higher opinion of the movie than when we first finished watching the movie. And that's true here, too, because we did talk about a lot of the positives of this movie, a lot of the things we love. So... If you're into this style of movie, go ahead, watch it, enjoy what you can, forget what you can't, and just have a good time. That's a good way to look at it. I feel like this movie has piqued my interest in the Hong Kong action genre. I don't know if I necessarily want to run out and watch as much as I can, but I definitely feel more willing to sit down and see what they have to offer because of this. I have no experience with that genre. And I can see this being a bit of a gateway, which does not upset me. Yeah, that sounds excellent. Anytime you can be introduced to a new genre and it pique your interest, I see that only as a plus. Yeah, and you're right. There are a lot of things in this movie to love. I didn't even mention the restaurant fight that Fang has with Grant Page. Oh, the kitchen fight was excellent. That was my favorite part of that whole chase. Mm. That chase was a little bit long, but they ended up in this restaurant and the kitchen portion of that fight, I found delightful. Yeah. There's a lot of fun to be had in this movie. So I would say that it is worth checking out for sure. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. The Man from Hong Kong is presented by British Empire Films Australia, Golden Harvest Company, the Australian Film Development Corporation, and the movie company Proprietary Limited. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link, join our Patreon by clicking the support link, 
or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link. Thank you for joining us for Mad Max Minute. We'll see you next time. Sky.